Welcome. This is the Stay Healthy Experience, hosted by Robert Ferguson, Mr. Daniel Baldwin, and Barbara Chris. Now, today is Robert Ferguson all by himself, and I am so fortunate and lucky to get to have a conversation um, with Dr. Sabine. Thank you for uh, giving us some time. My pleasure. My pleasure. Now, you know, you've been on before, and we've had an amazing conversation. People are still talking about it. They've been saying, can you get her back? Please talk to her. We, we have questions and she seems so real. <laughs> before well, we I jump, hope I'm real. No, you're, yeah, you're very, very real. So, but before we jump into um, uh, what we're going to talk about, which I believe is going to be quite helpful for quite a few people, um, don't be so humble, but give us a little bit of background to, uh, you know, who you are, what you have done and, and what you're currently doing. Um, I've, uh, I'm a gastroenterologist by trade, um, graduated from University of Florida where I started, um, uh, a graduating residency from university, from, uh, fellowship from University of Florida and basically did my research and research, uh, my first year I did research at University of Florida. Um, and little did I know that it was going to be actually the rest of my life was going to be, that was going to be my passion. What started off being a researcher, um, I thought I was going to be one of those gastroenterologists that just, you know, sees patients and, and clinical, um, practice, but actually I found research to be more fascinating and especially the whole discovery, research and discovery, new products. So over the last 20, 25 years, I've done a lot of work with clinical trials uh, for a lot of pharmaceutical companies, putting drugs to market. Um, my my uh, claim to fame in the pharma world is a little bug called Clostridium difficile, where I was always the top recruiter because those patients came to me for clinical trials. When clinical trials didn't work, I would do fecal transplant. And through fecal transplant, I discovered a couple miracles. Um, that I needed to explore. When clinical trials became fecal material in a pill, one could say I went rogue as a scientist and as a clinical trial doctor and basically decided to look into the microbiome myself because I was tired of being sold things on, you know, probiotics, this and this herb and this medication and this and that. And I said, you know what, we've, we've become, you know, uh, buyers and, and consumers and you know, where's the data? Where's the data behind all this? And so when I started seeing laboratories come out with tests that said, oh, well, you've got a lot of clostridium or too little clostridium or your, your, uh, your good bacteria, your bifidobacter is low. And, and they started telling this to patients and patients started inquiring about their gut flora, but there was no data behind it. Um, I started clinical trials on the microbiome to understand the microbiome and disease and have come to realize that it's a lot more complex than what people think it is. Um, th these are trillions of bugs and uh, it's very, very difficult to understand. It is not what we, so there is a postulate in medicine which is called the Cox postulate, which is basically where if you have an, a disease and you find the bacteria, the bacteria causes the disease, right? And so, therefore, an antibiotic is the solution to kill off the bacteria. Um, what I have come to realize with the microbiome is it's not that simple. Uh, the microbiome is really you kill off one bacteria, but then it killed off other bacteria while you tried to kill off. So, does the appearance of C. diff that kind of popped up in people because we tried to kill C. diff. So, you know, 20, 25 years of uh, research, 20, 25 years of clinical trials, opening a genetic sequencing lab to understand the microbiome puts me in a, in, a, in a very unique position in that I can look at the data myself. I'm no longer the consumer. I'm the scientist that wants to understand and that wants to see the truth. So when COVID-19 came on, I took it upon myself to create the protocol to put it on clinicaltrials.gov, to do the research, um, you know, with my own funds, um, to see the data because I wanted to see myself: is the hydroxychloroquine real? Is 
are the vitamins real, what's going on? And more importantly, what's going on at the microbiome level? So I think that's, that's, that's a little bit of a summary of who I am. Now, some people are, are new to microbiome. Can you give a, a, a general uh, explanation or description of exactly what that, what that is? So I'm going to explain it the way that I explain it to, in all my lectures. And, I, and for guys, they probably understand this very well. I'm going to compare the microbiome, which is essentially your microbes in your gut, your poop, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm going to explain it the way that I explain it, which is like a transmission of a car. If you have a transmission of a car and essentially... I don't know if you know, but when you open the transmission, it's actually, it's not just a big solid piece of a transmission. It's actually 880 pieces and screws all linked up together. If you've got one screw that's broken in the transmission, then you could fix that screw and probably your transmission is gonna be fine, but most likely you're gonna need to fix the next screw that you broke to fix the first screw Etc. Etc. Eventually, you need to just fix your whole transmission, and you're not going to take the transmission of a Honda and put it in a Mercedes, for example, right? It's right. kind of specific. So it's the same thing with the microbiome. The microbiome of, and I've said that, and you know, that's the whole basis of Progenobiome, which I started, uh, which is individualized microbiome. It is we are all different. How could we possibly have the same transmission? We all have different fingerprints. How could we possibly have the same microbiome? So we're entering an era of individualized medicine, of understanding the patient, understanding the, the uniqueness of the microbiome, and therefore applying therapy based on the uniqueness. And so the microbiome is you know, your, your waste in a way, your fecal material, However, it represents a lot more than that. It's bacteria, fungus, virus, parasites, all commingling together with fiber. So when you look at you know, stools that are coming down a toilet now, you're going to have a different look at it because you're going to start saying, wow, there's a ton of bacteria. There's a ton of viruses, trillions and trillions. And those are inhabiting our guts, right? And what's important about that is that when we change what we were born with, to, uh, then we change the path of our disease. And so it's very important to understand the individual. It's very important to understand um, the foods for that individual, the, um, the whole what we put in our mouths to make sure that we're not overdoing on antibiotics, we're not overdoing with meat that have antibiotics in there. Everything we put in our mouths um, plays a role in changing and altering our microbiome. So what we're going to come to find out is, and what I'm most interested about COVID-19 right now, is how does COVID-19, who survives COVID-19? Are those the people that have strong gut microbiome and strong guts? Or are, is it people that are just strong genetics? We don't know yet. So that's why it's research. So you begin from the gut. I begin from the gut, yes. You know, it's interesting because no one, I mean, I haven't seen anyone say that on the stage or on TV or talk about the importance of gut health um, as we're dealing with this COVID-19. And, and gut health is so important. And I think what people don't understand is gut health has multiple, we have, there's multiple ways to improve our guts, right? The first thing being live a life that is not so turbulent. Now, if your personality like mine, I function in controlled chaos. You know, my life, I'm dealing with clinical trials, two kids, we just adopted a cat today. So <laughs> it's, it's that controlled chaos, right? I function in that because my microbiome functions in that. However, if, and because my whole life, I've always been at a heightened level of stress. So my body, when it relaxes, that's when I get sick because I'm always on a heightened stress level that that's how I function. If I stop and I rest, then all of a sudden I get sick because I allowed my body to catch the virus and to incubate it, right? 
So I'm always in a go, go, go. However, if you're a person that's been gardening your whole life and you're very peaceful and you're yoga instructor, or you're sensitive to certain, you're an artist, then probably putting yourself in a stressful situation is not a good thing because now you're going to catch a virus by being so stressed about it. Right. right. So, uh, so I think you have to know who you are, your personality, and then you have to say, okay, you know what? Stress is really bad for me because every time I stress, I get a cold sore or I get stomach ache or I'm nauseous or I get a virus. So then you know that you have to kind of <clears throat> go back and say, okay, stress is really bad. I need to do whatever it takes to calm down my stress. <clears throat> and inevitably, when you look at patients, and I've treated patients that have Crohn's disease and all sort of colitis, and I will tell you, the first thing that I stress upon them, and funny mentioning stress, the first thing that I emphasize is I say, look, what has changed in your life that has triggered this to happen, that triggered the domino effect of your gut being in complete disarray? And inevitably, when you talk to Crohn's patients or ulcerative colitis patients, it's either they embarked on a new job. Like I, I'll give you an example. I had a yoga instructor that decided to join the stock market. Well, all of a sudden he developed Crohn's and then he went back to being a yoga instructor and now he's fine. I've not seen him for seven years. He's in remission. Wow. Right? Same thing, ulcerative colitis patient who decided to become a medical, uh, who, to try to go to medical school. And his personality, he's a surf guy. He's a guy who does surfing. He's, he's a party guy. He's not the kind of guy that sits down and studies for hours. And, and so it all internalized and he developed rectal bleed and thus had ulcerative colitis. He stopped that, changed his environment, went back to surfing. He lives actually in Australia. He moved out of this country because this country was stressing him politically. And now he's fine. And he's, he, he's not been on any medications. And literally, it's probably been about six, seven years with this guy too. So wow. when you see these cases, right? You, and then same thing. I, I have kids at 18 whose parents get divorced and then all of a sudden develop Crohn's disease. They internalized, right? So when you internalize and you keep everything inside, you're, you're breeding that bad bacteria to kind of grow. So, I mean, it's a simplistic way to say it. And it's funny to say it as a scientist without, you know, without, uh, you know, the strong data behind it. And I'm sure my colleagues will, you know, make fun of me for saying that because these are obviously my observations. I never really wrote the data or the paper, um, but these are my observations. And I believe, you know, in research and in medicine, experience has a lot to do. And we take these histories from patients. We gain knowledge and i think after 25 years i've gained knowledge into a lot of diseases of you know where things i see similarities and and common things so i don't necessarily follow the path of just you know following um within a box the standard i kind of like look beyond on how to treat my patients that's why you'll see me you know tell my patients please do meditation you have inflammation in your stomach Yes, if it's an inflammation that's from an ulcer, from a bacteria, I will treat that. But if it's from an inflammation and I don't see the cause, you know, I'm going to do no harm first by trying the things that are natural, you know, the natural products, the natural de-stressing uh, modalities like meditation. So because I think it's a time to reset, you know, I think, um, I, I don't know if you know Alejandra DeLuca. Uh-huh. She's a meditation, uh, I call her meditation guru. She, she laughs at me because she thinks she's not a guru, but I tend to think she is. She's very deep and um, she gives an example which kind of stuck with me because I actually invited her to speak at the Malibu Microbiome meeting uh, last year. And she gives an example of a bottle that you shake constantly, right? And if you shake that bottle constantly, there's a lot of bubbles and gas that gets developed, right? Well, what happens when there's so much gas, eventually the bottle, you know, the cap comes off, right? Because you keep shaking it, shaking it. But if you settle the bottle and you just let it sit for a little bit, then all of a sudden it calms down. The water is all calm again. 
It's the same thing. What makes us think that our bodies are any different? We are on the go, go, go. Now, if you can support the go, 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 and you can support being that gas bubble, great. You have an amazing microbiome for that. <laughs> but if you can't, then you got to slow down. And even me, by the way, as controlled chaos as I am, I stop and I breathe. And actually, she forces me to do meditation. And I say jokingly and lovingly, she forces me because I love it. it. It kind of makes me refocus. I also engage in gardening because gardening gets me with the earth it's the natural microbiome it's you know all the dirt what is you know gardening actually made me realize the whole magic behind fecal transplant because what are we doing when we're doing fecal transplant we're transplanting microbes into the colon we're essentially gardening right, right. we're putting new microbes and we're letting them you know grow i always say when i explain fecal transplant to patients, I say, it's like having a grass full of weeds. So you take off the weeds, you clean them off, and then you rummage the earth, right? You turn around the earth, and then you plant the seeds. Now, if there's a tornado that happens, the seeds disappear, right? Right. If, if, um, if you give it sun, you give it water, you give it peace, then plants start growing, right? Right. And then if you put diversity of plant, then it's a beautiful garden, right? So we need diversity, diversity of the, of the gut, diversity of the, of the earth. We need diversity. That's the only way, in my opinion, humanity will survive. Why do I say that? Because diversity equates health and non-diversity equates disease. We see it. We see it in the microbiome. When I see kids that have autism is because they've lost their diversity. When I see kids with Crohn's disease, they've lost their diversity. It's so important. Diversity is important. So if we bring that out to the planet, you know, that every culture, every, and, you know, so appropriate with this whole racial, you know, uh, awareness, it's so important to realize that every race is beautiful and brings on something to the planet. You destroy one race, one culture, you lose humanity. Think right. about it. You cannot have a planet full of robots that looks like one person. You know, right. in an era where we're trying to hit artificial intelligence and robots and robots thinking and having the Sabine robot on Amazon.com, well, the Sabine robot is not going to be fixing you because the Sabine robot's not going to know how to reach a patient to talk to that patient and figure out what is really the stressor and the problem and the initial trigger that started all this. You got to be a detective as a doctor. And that's what it's all about. So I love the fact that you bring up diversity. And when you look at, because you want diversity, right? When it comes to like gut bacteria. And you want diversity. You remove diversity, you, you're, it's, you get disease. And I, I see it. Wouldn't this be an example of a person, you know, you, you get someone who wants to lose weight and oftentimes they'll just say, I'll just eat the same thing every day. And they throw themselves into this, this process of just eating the same things, which they don't have that variety or diversity when it comes to food. Wouldn't, isn't there potential like negatives that would take place? Yes. So I have a say, our gut is, is there to essentially kill us, Right. So our gut dictates our longevity. Our gut, when you're craving chocolate every day, that's because your gut is telling you it needs chocolate because you've made it addicted to chocolate, right? right? When you give your gut the sugar and it starts craving sugar, it's because it's the bacteria that you've allowed to flourish that required the sugar. Same thing, if you allow your gut to have just greens, your gut is just going to require. A perfect example of that is Diet Coke or Coke, right? So you know when you drink Coke, you start craving Coke, right? And then you hear that, you know, you open the cap and you hear that gas coming out and you start <laughs> craving it, right? It becomes like an addiction. It's almost like a drug, right? But when you stop drinking Coke, you've starved the bacteria that was craving the Coke. And then all of a sudden, when you do taste it again, you realize it's not that great. Same thing with coffee, by the way. When you overabuse coffee, eventually you develop heartburn. And then eventually, 
you, you start having problems. So yes, one cup a day is okay, but four cups a day, eventually you're gonna start having heartburn, which is gonna become, you're gonna need a medications for the heartburn, which is gonna create another set of problems from the medications for the heartburn. We've seen with all these Perlosec, you know, osteoporosis, et cetera. So it's never, it's you start something and it triggers a whole domino effect. So I think it's very important to realize that our gut tells us what we want, but also if we're overdoing it, then maybe it's not such a good thing. Maybe that's killing us. So in other words, if you're diabetic or you're morbidly obese and your gut is craving the fried food and the sugars, well, you got to go back and say, okay, it's time to deprive my gut of those things because that's what's killing my gut. And another thing that people don't realize is it's not only the foods, but it's also, you know, and I'll give an example, chewing gum, right? And I say this specifically for my oldest daughter, because my daughter doesn't listen as you know, <laughs> kids don't listen to their parents that are doctors. When you chew gum, what is the principle of chewing gum? You're telling your stomach you're about to receive it to receive food, right? right? So what happens is you build up acidity waiting in your stomach because you're chewing. It's mm. waiting for the food to be neutralized. So you're chewing the gum, you're building up acidity, but you're not giving it food that gets neutralized by the acidity. What happens to that acidity, you think? It keeps going down into your gut. Eventually, it kills off your good bacteria. And so these are the things that you have to kind of think about, you know, when you when people start thinking about foods and nutrition, et cetera. So I'm very anti-chewing gum. Okay. And you're, are you anti-probiotic or prebiotics? So I'm anti-probiotics that have not been investigated because I'm a researcher and I like to see the data in a controlled trial. So if you're telling me your probiotic is decreasing cholesterol, then I want to see a, a double-blind placebo-controlled randomized trial to show that uh, uh, the probiotic was given versus a sugar pill and that the, the probiotic actually worked and decreased the cholesterol. We've not seen those studies in the probiotic world and we need to see them. And, and the only way to see them is at the FDA level because the FDA has some, you know, supervise, you know, supervises things. I'm very weary about probiotics that come out because there's a study that actually showed that out of 17 probiotics, 16 out of them were not what it said on the box. And that scares me, frankly, because if I'm giving something to my patient, I want to make sure the ingredients are what it says it is. Um, part of, you know, the whole industry, the whole natural industry of vitamins and probiotics needs to be tested and needs to have a, another lab that can oversee, an independent, unbiased lab that oversees that these are actually the ingredients that are in these products. Because too often we're seeing vitamins that have been contaminated, probiotics that are not what they're supposed to, see, to say, and then that damages your gut microbiome even more. The probiotics that I do believe in are the natural probiotics, you know, the yogurts, um, the kefir, you know, those things, I, I believe. The manuka honey, I'm a huge... I'm a huge pusher of natural honey and especially honey of your local area that where you were born because the honey, think about what the honey is. It's the microbiome of the bees. So you're essentially getting fecal transplant in a way by ingesting the microbiome from the bees. So mm. honey is, is, is good. Obviously everything in moderation, uh, but that's, that's what we need. All right. Well, I know it must drive you crazy to turn on the television and watch the media um, give us insight uh, because they're all coming across as experts. And I would love yes. your, your immediate feedback on that because I mean, you're a clinician. You do the trials. You're like you're in the midst of it at this very moment. Um, but we're out here one day. They say you can attract it this way. Then the next day they're saying. Uh, you don't need to wear the mask. And then, you, you know what I mean? Now politics are coming into it. It's so confusing that I think that that's adding more stress to quite a few people, which is, of course, then creating other negatives that are taking place inside our bodies. 
so I will tell you, I, first of all, I don't have time to watch the media. Secondly, um, <laughs> I don't, um, I, you know, the media is geared to do one thing, sell products, right? What is the purpose of the media? It's there to, to do commercials so they can sell you the next product, the next, you know, Coke, the next uh, sweater, the next car. So the media, in order to, to get attention, needs to be controversial, right? I right. mean, life is all about controversy. And controversy stirs up anger. Controversy stirs up, um, you know, um, uh, this, this whole problem that we have right now in the world and the division. Um, and actually, it's really bad for your gut, in my opinion, because the more you listen to it, the more you get anxious, the more you get angry. And then the more it triggers disease. So I don't listen to the media for that one purpose that, you know, it doesn't really teach me anything that I need to know. I certainly don't need the media telling me about research. Uh, I read the articles myself. I criticize the articles myself. I think the media is doing a disfavor to the scientists and the doctors uh, because it is creating a bias in research and it's dangerous. Uh, why is it dangerous? Because when a doctor starts thinking that he's not going to try a product because the media has said the product is bad, um, it is harming the patient. So it does have some problems with, I have a problem with that. The second thing is as a researcher, if you're already biased that the drug doesn't work because the media or by who is saying it, right? Imagine you don't like a certain person that is saying something, you're not going to, no matter what it takes, you're not going to you know, try that product and you're not going to, so it does bias research. It, the whole um, media interest on healthcare um, and, and the politics, frankly, and the narrative is, is destroying uh, what we are trying to accomplish as scientists because it's very difficult to do clinical trials on COVID-19 because there's a huge flux of social media interference and politics and everybody's going at it. They're not looking at your best interest at heart. They're looking at the interest of who's gonna win an election or who's gonna sell which product, right? I mean, that's what it's designed for. It's marketing 101. So um, it, it's difficult in that environment to practice medicine. It puts doctors on in a difficult position because they're trying to save their patients. And at the same time, they're scared. Think about it, we live in a litigious world. So on one hand, you're scared of giving hydroxychloroquine. And on the other hand, you know, and I'm talking about hydroxychloroquine because that's the best example right now that we have that's been so dramatized and so over the top. So as a doctor, you're scared of giving hydroxychloroquine and, and then you're not scared and you wanna save your patient and you go in and you risk your license and, and you go out and, and do it. So it's, it's a difficult uh, position to put the physicians and I think it's, a wrong, it, it's wrong to do that because we need our doctors. We need our doctors to be warriors. We cannot have our doctors be victimized or be afraid. Think about it. A doctor that is afraid is not gonna operate on a child that is having a heart problem, right? If your surgeon comes in and is all you know, scared of operating, he's not gonna do a good job and he's not gonna operate. You need a warrior doctor to go in there and say, I'm gonna fix that kid. I'm gonna do the best I can and I'm gonna be a warrior in the OR and that kid's gonna be fine. But if the doctor goes in and goes, oh my God, I could cut or create a bigger scar and I could hurt the kid or I could kill the kid, the confidence is gone. Right. And then you cannot operate, you cannot. So, so where does so where do you, where do doctors go? I mean, the doctors, you, know, you would think they wouldn't be listening to the media. Uh, the, the, the ethical doctors that practice um, following, um, you know, rules of ethics do not look at the media. They look at journals. They read the journals. They read the publications like I did. When I read that Lancet article on hydroxychloroquine, first of all, I was, the first thing that came to mind is 96,032 patients were reviewed in one month. As a scientist, I can barely review 100 charts in a month. Right. So you're going to tell me four people reviewed the medications of 96,000 people? I mean, where did that come from? Right. And then you come to find out it was only 
four do four people wrote the papers and then when you dug into it it was a sci scientific a science fiction novel writer that wrote the paper and then the second one was an event planner or something along those lines so when we as doctors we know who we know who writes the data we know who are the doctors like if you call me and you say um, i have a patient i have a neurological problem who's the best i'm going to tell you who is the best neurologist to go to because he wrote the data he wrote the articles when i needed in vitro for my daughter i knew who wrote the protocols for in vitro i went to the source i went to the guy when i see his papers come out and i see his results i trust that data so we as doctors as scientists we know who is writing the legit data we know who to trust because we know who is ethical even in the clinical trial business by the way we know who is ethical we know which pharmaceutical company is ethical and which one is not right and so does the fda you know you just have to look at the at the background of who was fined by the fda when you see a pharmaceutical company that was fined in the billions for trying to bribe their doctors you have to kind of say mm, maybe that's not the pharmaceutical company's drug i want to use right right so it's all about um being ethical because ultimately we're all going to be patients and karma is just that it's karma yeah. i have always stayed in the trial business and i always said good drugs go out bad drugs stay out because if the drug shows that it works and it's successful it needs to come out that's why we do clinical trials if a drug is bad and it kills people then it shouldn't come out and that's the end of that so we have to remain ethical why because if i put a drug out into the market guess what's going to happen that drug was bad and i put it out in the market next thing you know i become the patient and i take that drug and it kills me so it's karma you have to put goodness into the universe goodness into the world to be ethical listen my protocols on hydroxychloroquine azithromycin vitamin c d and zinc if they don't tell the truth if they're if they don't work and the vitamins are actually successful as successful as the hydroxychloroquine azithromycin i'm gonna say the vitamins are just as successful if not and the, and the hydroxychloroquine is better i'm gonna say it's it's better because ultimately first of all orange is a really bad color on me so <laughs> and you know i like the fda i like them to respect me my name my reputation i like to be ethical so if a drug is right the drug is is coming out if the drug is wrong then it's not coming out that's it well not everyone has access to someone like you right so people are turning on the tv who do we listen to do we listen to the, uh, listen, Oz? do we listen yeah, to so so let me tell you who you listen to you develop a relationship with your doctor you develop a relationship with your doctor knowing that you trust that doctor the doctor that like gave your you know delivered your child the doctor who took care of you for your cholesterol and that allowed you to stay alive that's the first thing and then you got to have those discussions with your doctor it's a patient doctor relationship the moment we put the media the politicians the electronic medical records the lawyers the insurances the pharmaceutical companies in between that patient doctor relationship we've lost we've lost as healthcare we need to go back to basics of having a discussion with our doctors and we need to understand also that the doctors are overwhelmed they're they're extremely busy they you know the 5 minutes that your insurance pays them to take care of you is not going to be the way that they're going to figure you out so maybe figure out a system where you know you tell your doctor look i i want your time i want to have i want to have uh i want to be healthy i want to discuss it and 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 uh you know have that relationship and it doesn't even have to be a doctor it could be a healer your meditation uh healer your your naturopath whoever you have trusted to get you this far obviously if you're healthy and you're still doing great then you have to trust yourself and by the way you're trusting your gut flora it's gut instinct your gut instinct trust it don't you, know, you can listen with one ear and right. you can listen to the media and you can say okay well that's one opinion i always like to have multiple opinions and then make your judgment so you're saying go to our doctors 
uh, well, maybe there's a split between doctors, right? Because if you look at just wearing the mask, you have this political debate. You, the, the media always shows people talking about, well, I'm not going to wear a mask. This is a bunch of, this is hogwash. It's not going to make a difference anyway. But no one's really interviewing the doctors. So it's a great point you're, you're bringing up. Would you guess, would your gut say that the majority of doctors would say everyone should be wearing a mask? Yeah, I think the majority of, do listen, what is the harm? It's Life is about risk versus benefits. What is the risk of wearing a mask? Okay, so it's inconvenient. Okay, so, you know, some people suffocate with it, okay? But the, ultimately, it, they, don't, they shouldn't be suffocating. They're just anxious because they're wearing a mask. But ultimately, the risk of wearing a mask is way less than the benefits. And if the benefit is making another human being comfortable, I'll tell you, the woman, you know, who, Good point. you know, it's all about being nice for the other person, right? If I'm at the bank and I'm pissing off someone because I'm not wearing a mask and they're immunosuppressed, they're taking these chemo drugs, then it's my job to be nice and put a mask. Mm. Why, why are we so stubborn to say, Oh my God, my freedom. No, freedom freedom is only free if it doesn't impact the freedom of others, okay? I'm pretty sure when people talk about freedom, it's not to impact the freedom of others, okay? Freedom is free if you are considerate and if you're good to make sure that you help your neighbor first, okay? That's what it's like, it's about. Okay. So. All right, so for you, I know, so I, I would assume you so were- for me, I, I wear a mask and I go to a place where everybody wears a mask. It's inconvenient, it's annoying, but you know what? Until I know more about this virus and I feel comfortable that everybody is, doesn't have it and, and it's pretty benign or not benign, I don't know yet enough. You know, research is not fast, it's slow. So are you in full agreement with the way things have been taken uh, the approach to helping people stay healthy, you know, as far as shut down, stay in, uh, keep a distance. You're in full agreement of all that? I'm, you know, I, I don't know that I'm in full agreement now because I've seen so many patients do so well that I think we need to keep the businesses open as long as there's, you know, proper methods of cleanliness. Um, I think basically businesses need to survive and you know we don't want people staying indoors because then they're going to get cabin fever and we've also seen the suicide rate go up and mental illness go up etc so i don't think it's such a bad idea to reopen but i just think it's a bad idea to have 20,000 people in the same place i think uh we're not there yet and i think amongst the 20,000 people we don't know who's immunosuppressed um so you know so I think things like concerts and, and other things, um, you know, to me are, um, you know, need to be delayed a little bit um, until we get a better picture of what this virus is doing. Okay. Now you're in the midst of your own clinical trials. Is there anything you can share with us as far as what you're discovering, what you're potentially I, predicting? I honestly, I'm blinded, so I have no idea what I'm discovering. I'm just, okay. you know, I'm just praying to God every day that, uh, you know, nobody that, you know, people either get treated with the vitamins or the, or the protocol because, uh, or the treatment, because uh, I, I feel, you know, the, the right thing to, to do would have been to do an open label study where we give everybody the same drug and see how many people, but unfortunately, because of the fact that 99% of people survive and do well on their own. Um, you know, it's, it's a hard study to do with open label. So we need to do the double blinded, but you know, every day, uh, you know, I have an, I I'm developing an ulcer myself from the stress of this trial. Um, I think it's very, um, it's, it's difficult to recruit patients. It's difficult because everybody's scared of taking pills. Uh, it's difficult to recruit also because of the fact that there is a placebo arm, which is the vitamins. Um, it's, um, it's also difficult to get, uh, you know, grants and everything because it's so long. And so everything about research is challenge about this research in particular is challenging. So I have really nothing to say. 
except we have looked at the stools of patients um, with, um, with uh, COVID-19. So that data is coming out in two weeks and I'll be glad to share when it's coming out. Oh, that would be great. Anytime. And, and also, you know, if you come back on, if there is a way that we could contribute to your research, you know, make donations, um, is there a website that, that could take place? Is that even? Yeah, so we, everything is on Progena Biome actually. So we have uh, the testing. So people that are positive, if they want to get tested in their stools, we have that platform. We have uh, the prophylaxis uh, protocol and we have the treatment. If, you know, prophylaxis is only for the doctors because we want high, well, doctors, nurses, frontliners, because we want high risk. You know, think about it. If the prophylaxis protocol works, on a clinical trial level, and we showed the FDA that it actually works, well, that's a way to get people back to their lives because think about it. When, um, if you're about to take a plane and you know that you've been exposed to someone on the plane that is COVID, but you take the prophylaxis pills before going on the plane and it works and you don't get infected, then that's amazing, right? right. That's the way to get us out. <clears throat> and then the treatment, is really, I think, you know, my husband, Dr. Steinberg, who, you know, you've all seen from the Michael Jackson trial, Conrad Murray trial, he was the expert. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see the data. We'll see the cardiac issues that were raised on these drugs. We need to show the data. We need to see, are these drugs, you know, safe to put in combination or not? That's why we do clinical trials. So, yeah, I mean, the sooner we finish these trials, the sooner we have data, but you know, it, it's been challenging. Part of the reason I've kind of un, you know, I've taken this on myself after seeing the data from the French study and then from hearing from Dr. Zelenko's, you know, um, on television is because I wanted to make sure that it was a legit trial and that the FDA, you know, the FBI office is right across the street from me. So, you know, I wanted them on board to see it because when they see the data, then they'll say one way or another if it passes or it doesn't pass because right. that's how we do research. Otherwise, if we start changing the way we do research, then everything that's in the market, including the 300 plus clinical trials I've done or my sisters have done, um, should be are obsolete, right? If right. you're all of a sudden changing the formula of how you do research, then let's go back and remove everything off the counter. Let's remove Remicade. Let's remove Prilosec, you know? Because then these, th this research was not done properly either, right? So we have to continue in the same way. The world is united, and, it's, and I wish the world would unite politically the same way it is united with research. We don't have discrepancies in research or conflicts. We follow the ICHGCP guideline, uh, and we follow the, the harmonization conference that was created of the whole world joining. Do you know how beautiful it is to see my protocol being given in India and research doctors in India and doctors in India are using my protocol or in Iran and it's working, you know, or not working. I don't know, we're doing clinical trials. But what's amazing is research all comes together as a world. This virus, the message is for people to unite to stop creating chaos, to stop creating anger, to just unite, calm down the planet, let the planet breathe, let the animals go out, let the plants regenerate. We're, we've, we've gone too fast, too far. This is a reset button for the planet, I think. So, and humanity needs to follow with that. The moment humanity thinks that they're, you know, above the planet, we'll have lost humanity because the microbiome that is in your gut controls you, not the other way around. You are simply the reservoir of all those bacteria. Wow, you know, the first thing that came to mind when you were saying what you just said was, I thought of Einstein. I remember Albert Einstein once said that his biggest concern is the day that technology surpasses humanity. Uh, and I love, I love the fact that as a scientist, researcher, and all the work that you do, that's always a big part of the, the, the bigger picture is that you bring in humanity. Yes, and by the way, Einstein also said you get rid of the bees, bye-bye planet, you know? So the bees gave you an insight on the whole microbiome 
because remember honey is the is the gold so local honey you know is the gold so we we tend to think of ourselves as an individual it's about me 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 but it's not about us we're here to do a job whatever job we're here to do is basically what we were given to do when you look into the trillions of bugs in the microbiome world and we've only seen the 1% there's 99% we don't know. And right. that's the area we should be focusing on to, to, to dig into that world because that world has magic. And when you transplant, and I say, why does the reservoir control us? When I do fecal transplant, and I know a lot of my colleagues have seen that, of a person that's happy and I transplant it into a depressed person, the depressed person all of a sudden is happy. What did we change? we change the microbiome inside the gut. You'll, you'll see there's a paper that I was just, that just published. Uh, it took 18 months, by the way, to publish. It was a case report of a patient. And, and really the reason I went into this whole path of progenobiome and understanding the microbiome, it was a case report of a patient that I used his wife's poop. He had C. diff. He was depressed and he, was, and he had Alzheimer's and he forgot his mini mental status score was 20 which was Alzheimer's picture, right? Mm -hmm. I did fecal transplant on him for using his wife, who was super happy, super sharp. And within mm -hmm. six months, his mini mental status went from 20 to 29. Wow. He was remembering his daughter's birthday. He was, he was actually reminding me of things I had asked him on the previous visit. That's when it kind of perked my attention to say, wait a minute, I need to recheck his mental status. And even the neurologist who rechecked his mental status at four months went from 20 to 24. So something changed, even though it was temporarily, of course it was temporarily because he was given more antibiotics after the transplant and right. everything I gave him changed. It was something that was almost a miracle that kind of told me to look into the microbiome. And that's when I met with Dr. Sidney Feingold who wrote the book on anaerobic bacteria who gave me a paper on Alzheimer's where he had cultured the microbes of hundreds and probably a thousand patients with Alzheimer's and found a bunch of bacteria that were different and said to me, you need to buy a machine to analyze the stools. And then once you buy the machine, you're going to prove my paper. I put that paper in a safe and I've been doing the studies. So we're doing the studies. We're just tapping into the beginning of this. Wow. This is a world of possibilities of hope. But if we don't come together as a planet, as humanity, and stop all the chaos and look at it, this is not a one woman show, by the way. Everybody tells me, oh, you need to go out and start talking about your this and this. No, I'm not going to talk. You see me, I'm basically not even showing my face today. So it's not a one woman show. It is all the scientists need to come together. All the doctors need to come together. This is a trillion bugs. If we don't do it together, we're never going to understand it. So I'm just following the giants in my mind, Dr. Sidney Feingold, Dr. Thomas Barodi, Dr. Neil Stolman, Dr. Colleen Kelly. These are to me the giants that were the heroes of, of stepping into it, into doing, using stools and transplanting and seeing magic. And, and saying, you know what, we need to understand this better. And it's not a pharmaceutical product. It is an understanding. So it's about doctors being doctors again. It's about giving doctors the confidence to be doctors again and to be scientists again. The moment we put our doctors as victims and we threaten to sue them and we, we've lost, we've lost. Wow. I'm with you on everything. That, I mean, I can listen to you all day, every day. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, I try to be real. I probably say too much and I probably go on, but I'm passionate about this. Yeah, well, um, I'm, this I'm so thankful for you making time because I know how over the top, extremely busy you are. I totally get my it. Pleasure. But, uh, my pleasure. But we appreciate it. We have a growing community and, and uh, I'm gonna you know, make your, your uh, website available. Uh, we're here thank to you. help support, you know, contribute, do whatever we can. Thank uh, you. And any papers you can send me, I would love to, everything you've mentioned, I would love to read through. Um, Absolutely. As a, as a fan and researcher myself, as it pertains to microbiome, 
you know, I, I just love the work that you're doing. And I believe that you are 100% accurate. I, my gut has been telling me, my gut, that the answers to a lot of um, health issues is going to be revealed uh, through fecal transplants and, and the understanding of microbiome. I really a hundred percent. And actually, we we believe it or not, it's this is not a new principle. This is you know twenty five hundred years ago, Hippocrates said that all disease starts in the gut. Mm-hmm. Maimonides, who was a physician, also said nutrition is important. So through the centuries, you know, human beings have had these this instinct that the gut and what we feed, we all have that instinct. You eat something, it disrupts your gut, you know it tells you, right? Mm. So it's, I think this is something we need to step into to understand and I'm happy that I'm, uh, you know, part of it. I I told Dr. Barodi, uh, who was actually in my, who's actually in my opinion, the the father of fecal transplant um, in this century especially, uh, I told him, I said, I'm a huge fan of his because I'm just happy to be part of the ride. I'm the girl that basically gets it done and that I can coordinate, you know, 48 clinical trials in one year. But at the same time, you know, I'm not the genius behind it. There are other geniuses uh, that, are, that need to be mentioned and a lot of heroes in the healthcare and a lot of doctors are, um, you know, are, are, warriors out there and doing the right thing being doctors and and following doctors that from the past like dr sanofi pastor and and being researchers and doctors so all right well thank you for um for being here i really appreciate it and uh, when you're ready and you have some additional updates we would love to to bring you back and and take it to the next level thank you so much and you'll be my first one too oh thank you Stay healthy and love seeing the TikTok videos of you and the girls. Oh, yeah, they're great. It cheered me up. I loved it. It was yeah. awesome. Daddy's Thank trying you. to, I'm trying to get my, my swag back. <laughs> keep, it, keep it on because those are the things I want to see on social media. That's the only reason I'm on Facebook is to see happiness, you know? It's I, been so yeah. political and so morbid. You know, we need the light. We need the light. I agree. So thank you very much. And uh, we'll be talking soon. Okay. Okay. My pleasure. Bye.